Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting, and promoting good diversity, wellness, and reablement approaches. My name is Dale Park, and together with my colleague Lisa Dean, we are the Regional Advisors for Diversity and Wellness across the East Metropolitan Area of Melbourne. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and Elders all across Australia. We'd also like to especially welcome any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to this podcast. This is part two of our three-part series looking at the needs and experiences of older LGBTI people. In today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into the assessment process and thinking about what needs to be in place in order for older, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender or intersex people to feel safe and supported throughout that assessment process. We're very fortunate to be joined by Pauline Cremieri and Andrew Rogers from VALS LGBTI Aging and Age Care. Pauline, I know you previously worked as an assessment officer, so have great insight into the process of how an aged care assessment should be conducted. And you also now have a wealth of experience working many years with older LGBTI people. So from, I guess, both of those experiences, what would you say are the key things to make an assessment feel safe and inclusive? In terms of providing an inclusive assessment, it's really important to understand history and understand the lives of older LGBTI people, the diversity of those lives, and just being aware of any cues and, as we all do when we're undertaking an assessment, is we use our eyes, our ears, our nose. You use all of your senses. So it's really important to have had some education because if you don't know anything about the community that we're talking about today, you probably won't be receptive or understanding of any of those different elements. Another element to that is being aware of the language that you use, culturally safe and inclusive language. Pauline, we know that home support assessors use the National Screening and Assessment Form or the NSAP to gather information and guide service outcomes. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts were about the use of this form and its relevance to the idea of cultural safety and inclusive language. I'd love a dollar for every time someone said, oh, but the assessment form or our forms aren't inclusive or the NSAF isn't inclusive. One thing that I know from my experience in undertaking an assessment is hopefully this is around having a conversation this is around putting someone at ease no one wants to be assessed but it's about having a conversation and how you can use your knowledge and your skill to guide that conversation in a really inclusive way so what I'm really hearing you say is regardless of the form It's the conversation that each individual has that will enable the assessment process to be inclusive. It mightn't be that whatever form or your process utilises a range of what we would term as LGBTI welcoming and inclusive language, but it might be as simple as sitting down and saying, oh, hi, my name's Pauline and I use she, her pronouns. 
Now, the majority of people are going to be thinking, why is Pauline saying that? But for a trans or gender diverse person, or perhaps someone from the community, that might be just that message of welcome, that beacon for them that no one else may recognise that you are inclusive and aware. Again, they may not disclose, but it may put them at ease. It may provide them with more confidence to access services, to ask you questions. One of the things that we recognise with assessment, and it's certainly something that I know from my past experience, is it's such a short episodic experience and that disclosure is probably not that likely at assessment, regardless of how many bells and whistles that you have. But it's about making sure that that person feels confident, feels heard and feels empowered to access care and support. I think that's some really great points there. And the idea of the conversation, it's not just going to be beneficial and useful for LGBTI people, it's for everyone. And one of the key takeaways is that you're not necessarily going to know if you're working with an LGBTI person or not, and they may not disclose anyway, but you can always be inclusive in the way that you have your conversation in the way that you form your questions. Pauline, do you have any examples of a situation where a skilled practitioner, for example, was able to manage an assessment that had the potential to go wrong? A number of years ago, I did some work with ACAS and an assessor in particular who had received a referral for an ACAS assessment from a GP for a woman and on the referral form it had lesbian question mark question mark question mark and fortunately this assessor had knowledge and skill and he went out and did the assessment and he said he was greeted by two older women and at no time did they give you know did they let the cat out of the bag regardless of how many times he provided opportunities for that and I think the important thing there is it's not our responsibility to out someone so we might recognize there might be all of the indicators there but if particularly older people that that silent or invisible generation don't feel confident and safe to disclose then as skilled practitioners we should just leave them be. Thank you, Pauline, for your insights. And I really like the idea that you talk about using all of your senses to create an environment. And we often talk about it as person-centred approach or a strength-based approach in the way that we work. Andrew, we've talked about some of the things that we might be able to do to create safe and welcoming environments. But I think it's probably important to ask what are some of the things that people often get wrong? Or, you know, what would make an assessment unsafe? That's a terrific question. You know, what do people get wrong? People can get wrong things like not respecting the gender of relationships, not using appropriate pronouns for somebody, and so not respecting their gender identity, of making comments about them that might be overheard, of not stepping in and encouraging teaching points when other participants make comments, of not showing active support. 
one of the things that people can get wrong is not taking on responsibility to educate themselves about the importance of history and its implications for older people now. Not understanding the reservations that people might have that come from that experience. It can be very simple things, you know, forms that don't allow you to state the nature of your relationship or declare for yourselves your gender identity. And one thing I, I sometimes hear from other older LGBTI people and common in conversation on Facebook is the notion that the aged care sector doesn't understand and is doing nothing. So what can providers be doing to influence or change the perceptions that older LGBTI people may have about their services? Getting it right means publicising, means talking openly, means taking a position of declaring support publicly because what you're building is trust. They won't use your services unless they trust you and that means you have to be safe even if you don't know that they're there. To add to what Andrew has said, language is really important and often service providers get this completely and utterly wrong. And we totally recognise that there's so much terminology. So utilising or downloading even the Victorian LGBTQIA plus language guide can really help to guide you. But being aware of language that is culturally appropriate to older LGBTI people. And what about people making assumptions about the LGBTI community or LGBTI people? I know that there's a story that Andrew has often told in our training. And while it probably relates more to residential aged care, I think it's a really important story. An older gay man, his care provider, bought tickets and took him along to Mardi Gras and great seats in a stand. And the next day... Staff were all talking and came into his room and said, oh, how did you enjoy Mardi Gras? And he said, oh, look, it was okay, but I probably would have rather gone to the Swans North Melbourne footy match. No one had asked him. They just made assumptions. He's a gay man. He'll want to go off to Mardi Gras. The other thing that many services in the past, and hopefully it is in the past, have got wrong, is that they think that the responsibility for providing LGBTI inclusive care and support is only from a handful of staff and that not everyone has to do it. Often people and services would talk about, we've got a champion. Well, what happens if that champion's sick or leaves? It's everybody's responsibility. And regardless of their personal values and beliefs, this is about your professional values and beliefs. This is about your professional conduct. There are some things that sometimes, hopefully in the past, services have got wrong, but we know that most services are really genuine in their commitment Mm. to LGBTI inclusive practice. Thanks. I think there's some really great examples and learnings that people can take away, not just making assumptions about what people want, the types of relationships they're in, and also being really responsive to receiving information and feedback. Pauline, one of the things that it would be great to get your insight into is the idea of asking the question about whether someone identifies, belongs to 
the LGBTI community. I think assessment officers and service providers need to be aware of when, how, and in what circumstance they can ask people. I guess there's a bit of a debate about should we ask, shouldn't we ask? If we ask, are we working with a cohort that probably won't tell? I think we are getting to the point that we should be asking people about their sexual orientation and their gender identity, but also being understanding and recognising history and that disclosure may not come from asking a question. What are the right types of circumstances that would make it okay to ask the question? And how should it be done? What are the right circumstances? I think asking everybody. You just can't make assumptions. Oh, that person looks transgender. I'm going to ask them and I'm going to use pronouns. Or that person, oh, that might be a lesbian. I'll ask them about LGBTI. No, I think we need to ask everyone about a whole range of diverse characteristics So that makes sense that we should be asking everyone the same types of questions or for the same type of information. What would you say the important elements then in asking these questions? It's how we ask. That's the important element. Asking everybody a range of questions about who they are is really important and letting them know that they can answer or not, that they have an opt-out. So it might be as simple as saying, I'm going to ask you a whole range of questions in order to ensure that we can provide the best care and support possible. Developing that authentic way of communicating is a really important thing. It's a bit of a layered approach as well. By that, I mean that information has been provided saying, we ask a whole range of questions to meet your personal needs, your individual needs and experiences. And Pauline, if questions are being asked about someone's sexual orientation, the nature of their relationships or about gender identity, what do staff need to do or to demonstrate in order to get it right and to show that this is a safe, inclusive space? If you are asking questions, staff are also skilled in providing supportive and affirming responses to those questions if someone does disclose. And it's not about data collection. One of the beauties of the approach that Pauline has just spoken about is by asking everybody, you're actually sending a message about the values of the organisation to everybody who accesses the service. If you're asking detailed or specific questions about aspects of diversity, people who are coming to use your service will get an understanding that the service they're now using is an inclusive one even if they're not part of that community, that everybody will be sharing in that message. And there's a ripple effect of that out to everybody who uses the service. It's also really important that all of the forms and documentation that you provide people also allow them to provide that information if they feel safe to do so. And it is really important that we communicate that to everyone, that they don't have to answer. It's if they feel safe to do so. 
You've both spoken a lot about the need for good inclusive language and communication, and we've touched on the use of forms, particularly the assessment forms, but as we know, there'll no doubt be other documentation required as part of the aged care engagement process. So what advice would you give providers about how they use these forms with clients? It's all very well to ask questions, say, in an assessment, but then if you get a form that isn't inclusive of you, what does that say about a service? Are there other ways that services can find out about how they're doing or how they're performing to support people or create inclusive LGBTI environments with their clients? If you and your organisation undertake surveys, again, another opportunity to communicate and collect information. But also, if you are asking questions, please tell people why you're asking them. And again, make sure that it is genuine to your service and organisation. Some really great advice for providers there. We've been talking about asking the question, and I suppose one of the key enablers in assessment, but also in service delivery, is being able to have the people who support you involved in your assessment and your care. So often we think about these as family members and traditional family members, sons and daughters and daughter-in-laws, etc. So, Andrew, I might ask you to discuss the idea of family and how family can mean different things to different people. Family is a really interesting concept for people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and or intersex. We often talk in the LGBTI community about the nature of chosen family because many particularly older people have had fractured relationships with their biological family. So the informal supports that are often provided by sons or daughters or grandchildren or brothers or sisters may not be present for older LGBTI people because of the breakdown of relationships. That doesn't mean they're necessarily alone because quite often what happens is that people form what we call a chosen family, really close friends, people of very great significance who will do things like make the initial inquiries or visit them while they might be in hospital or in care or pick up prescriptions or come around and do the housework. Those sorts of informal things can often be done by people who are not blood related. And so that notion of family can be very different. So if a service is talking about family, it's really important that you understand that family is a much bigger and broader concept and not necessarily blood related. The other thing that we know that is important to understand is quite often for many older, you know, the invisible generation for many of those older LGBTI people, much of their chosen family was of the same age. So they become increasingly isolated when other members of their chosen family depart this earth. And so that they don't have those same forms of informal support. We know that older LGBTI people are much more likely to live alone. And that they don't necessarily have 
a multi-generational chosen family. So they don't have the younger generations to provide support. And that means they can often miss out on the supports that will keep them healthy and well at home. And they don't actually end up accessing care until they reach a crisis point. So family is a very different concept for people who are LGBTI. And it can mean that social supports aren't as present, the informal supports aren't as present. Thanks, Andrew. And I think what I'm hearing you say is talking about rather than family, the idea about who are the people that are important to you might be a, a nice way of having that discussion with someone from the community. I think if you're talking about initial assessments and initial exposure to a service provider, if you as the provider is asking everybody, who is it that's important to you, without necessarily asking about blood family relationships or existing marriages and so forth, but you gently and nicely generalise the question, who are the most important people in your life who are providing the supports to you? It doesn't have to be about blood family. It can then open up the conversation for everybody to say, well, I don't have children, but these people provide me support. And I have my own experience of that. You know, I have a, a group of people who are supporting me as an older gay man who are very much my informal family. And they are the people I turn to when I need support. And that's an important thing for people to recognise. I think it goes back to, as Andrew has said, and as we've talked about throughout our conversation, it's about skillfully asking questions. And just because the form says next of kin, thinking about, no, how can I open up this conversation in a skillful, inclusive way? Just to touch on something that Andrew said, that many older LGBTI people may have fractured um, family relationships. And I guess some people listening may, may not know why that is the case. Going back to that history and remembering that society made being lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, or having an intersex variation wrong. And at the centre of society is family. And so many families historically turned their backs. Fortunately, we're seeing things change, but for many older LGBTI people, their biological family may not be part of their ageing experience. So it is really important for us to be all aware of the important people in everyone's lives, not just family or biological family. I think that information and that understanding of family dynamics and using family in the broadest possible term is really important for anyone working with older people, whether it's in aged care or in other settings also. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Andrew, if we think about a really significant moment within someone's life. It could be when they come out as either gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. What are some things that service providers need to be aware of that specifically relate to older people? It's important for everybody to understand that coming out doesn't happen just when people are young. What we know is many older people are 
coming out later in life. They might be affirming their gender identity later in life. And they have children and grandchildren. And because of that affirmation of an identity, there may be fractured relationships there as well. There may not be, of course. But don't make assumptions just because somebody is older and lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender that they haven't had children and grandchildren. We need to be really clear on that. And that's why, as Pauline says, finding a way to gently ask the questions and have the supportive conversation is absolutely fundamental to creating a welcoming environment. Thank you once again, Pauline and Andrew, for sharing your expertise and your experience, both on a personal and professional level. We discussed earlier the importance of storytelling in order to learn about who someone is and what's important to them. And that's what you're really sharing with our listeners today. So thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this episode and part two of our three-part series. In our final episode, we'll look at service delivery through an LGBTI lens and some of the key considerations for delivering services in the home, in a social setting, or in a community health setting. Thank you for listening. The Easter Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government, Department of Health, and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the material and comments made do not necessarily reflect the views or the policies of the Australian Government.